It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. With me is Michael O'Neill. He's a cannabis banker. Michael's got over 20 years of experience in the banking industry, including serving as an executive, compliance officer, auditor, consultant, and federal regulator. Michael, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Josh. Great to be here today. I appreciate it. So um, kind of jumping into everything that is banking, uh, especially cannabis related. Um, let's, let's, let's knock the, the easy one out, low-hanging fruit with, with lack of access to banking. How has that really, from your perspective, affected or impacted the cannabis industry not having traditional banking services? Well, I think, you know, when I first started this back in 2014, shortly after FinCEN issued the guidance to uh, be able to bank uh, cannabis-related businesses, that from the aspect, the access has literally grown. I think the latest FinCEN report says there's over 800 banks and credit unions that are there. Um, I sort of take a little different approach on it there, Josh, from I believe there is access to banking, basic banking, maybe not full service banking, uh, but unfortunately, people don't want to pay for the cost that goes into that because it is such an intensive program to bank the, this particular industry vertical. And on top of that, it is it is costly to be able to do so. And is that because there's a lot of compliance and due diligence and oversight and it's laborious because people just think, oh, it's there's high overhead, but just make it work. But what what makes it expensive? Well, I think, you know, I, it's, as I always try to tell everybody, Josh, it's BSA. It's simple BSA, but it's BSA on elephant steroids. That, mm-hmm. That's sort of my term for it. That, that's the Bank Secrecy it, Act, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act. But I think you also have, you know, it's not just BSA. It falls into the compliance pieces that you have to look at on normal compliance. Or from the standpoint, you know, not your rules if you're doing electronic transfers or accepting electronic payments into the system. There, uh, you know, it, it's not just a compliance function. That is your main function, I do believe. But on top of that, you're having to, you know, it's the onboarding process. You know, it's that, okay, are these folks fo- that we want to have within our bank? And then it's it's the constant monitoring that has to go on, the reporting process that goes into that. Um, you know, I was at the Safe Harbor program for almost four years. I was the BSA officer there. And also on top of that, I was the senior executive over the day-to-day operations of the program. And, you know, we had during... During my time, I went through nine different examinations by the NCUA and the state at the same time, approximately every 90 to 120 days. So, I mean, when it was first starting, it was they were very on top of it. And on top of that, I think, you know, some of the things that in normal banking where we would be able to take deposits in for a long time, the regulators were not allowing you to actually put those at least on the credit union side. We're not allowing you to use those deposits for normal banking activities that you would have used. So we had to stay 100% liquid as part of that. So we were literally transferring tens of millions of dollars on the last business day of, uh, of the month to get those balances off of our bank, you know, those deposits off of our balance sheet. But going back to it, it's just it's just so expensive. And I'll quote my old CEO, Sunday Seafried, you know, canvas bankers don't grow on trees. 
me, I started out when I didn't have a clue. Somebody just asked me, Michael, can you do this? And I'm like, sure I can. And, you know, absolutely. We were able to get it done at the first program that I was part of, but it goes into the number of people. And it's also, are you doing it manually or do you have an automation? Do you have internal automation that you develop yourself? Are you paying someone else? So there's all these different pieces of the puzzle that you have to look at that brings into the cost, which makes it very expensive to do. But I also know that I was part of six different companies here in Colorado that went from just small operations to now publicly traded companies. And I know they wouldn't have been able to do that without the facilitation of banking. Mm -hmm. At this point, do you think that the loans and credit aspect are the biggest challenge? I think there's still some things that are coming up, you know, because we, how should I say you know, I built a program here recently over the last couple of years, which I'm no longer part of at this point uh, for a bank out of the Midwest. And we were able to build a program that that focused on lending first. And but it goes back to that true and tried commercial methodology that you're looking there. Are you cash flow positive? You know, are you making debt income? Do you have a you know, do you have real estate to be able to pledge for that? And, you know, but. I believe that that lending will come even more so, particularly if we get the Safer Bank Act that comes through that will have a little bit more facilitation for that. But yes, I do believe that. But I also believe that, there, that one of the constraints in lending right now is there are so many people that, you know, you've got a lot of of loans that are coming due, whether they're private or, you know, they're actually through a bank that, you know, and the industry is suffering from such a downturn in the in the sales and profitability that we're having, that that's also leading into lenders not wanting to get involved because where I think a lot of people when it was early investments, you know, a lot of private dollars that were going in, they were looking at it from here's what our presumptions are, you know, our performers are when we're looking out into the future. And I don't think people are are, are looking at that anymore. You have to be a company that's literally, you've got to be making a profit. You've got to have real estate to put up there for collateral. You've got to have the cash flow. You've got to have that debt servicing ratio that meets the criteria for so many banks that are now in that space. So I want to kind of transition to um, how to reduce some of the the burden on everybody. Um, reduce the risk, reduce the, the hassle, um, reduce the fees, and wondering if if uh, technology is is the solution to that. Artificial intelligence is out there. You got ChatGPT uh, at your fingertips. I used it to come up with a couple of slogans that you probably don't want to use, but here they are. ChatGPT gave you a couple, you know, banking slogans that said your financial partner in crime. It's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> There's also uh, it's true. <laughs> growing green, banking green, uh, pretty pretty cheesy. Um, but so, what role does artificial intelligence and technology play in enhancing maybe the efficiency or security or um, risk or or otherwise? Where does technology play, and and how how is artificial intelligence going to shape the future of cannabis banking? Well, I think when we have looked at some of the some of the information that I've read and dug into for AI, the AI is not perfected yet. I mean, you know, you have to go back and look at some of the 
there are so many pieces in there, you know, you've got, oh, it can pass the medical exam or it can pass the, you know, the, the, the bar, you know, by itself, just knowing what it is, but also going back, but looking at it, some of the information in there is incorrect. So I think there's some perfection there, but I think AI and machine learning has already been a, an, a, a part of AML, BSA um, software systems. I mean, you know, they, they are sitting there. You've got Verifin. It, it it has a functionality that learns. It looks at the data and it continues to look at that. Um, I think that, yes, definitely um, software, you know, technology is going to be bringing the price point down because you don't have to do it manually. So therefore you can do, handle more accounts Per, per banker versus a smaller number in a banker's portfolio if you were doing it manually and those sort of things. But I think, you know, the bottom line is that technology is always going to be the riser when we look at economics. I mean, you know, any any technological innovation is going to improve the economics that you're going to have. But going back to the BSA and the AML rules are still going to be the same. That's, anti that's anti-money laundering for those that don't know, AML. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'm used to yeah, my right. yeah. uh, from the standpoint, uh, you know, but I think, you know, you're still going to have to have that human component that analyze the data at the bottom, you know, at the very end of the product, because it might be AI doesn't have that intuition. You know, I, I once again, one of my CEOs, you say, listen to that gut. It's 15,000 generations of genetics that's telling you something. And it comes from a time when we weren't at the top of the food chain. So from the standpoint, as modern humans, we sometimes ignore that. So it's a very good skill for someone within the anti-money laundering uh, space to be able to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of hippies out there that can resonate with that, myself included. Yeah. Um, so, so the trends in in um, the industry I'm seeing right now from from finance is um, definitely pulling money back. Um, ever since the Ukraine uh, issue, there's been a lot of investors really kind of holding uh, on to to money even tighter, making things a lot more challenging. We're seeing some consolidation as a result of that playing out in the um, in in the cultivation. And manufacturing are mostly retail, I would say, um, which is weird because most of the grows weren't moving all, all of that much. But this, for some reason, maybe it's this rescheduling and people wanting uh, that opportunity to get in. Um, those are the kind of things that that I'm seeing as well as the debt side was more popular because equity prices were just plummeting. Uh, they don't really move individual. They, they move with the news. And so... Um, unfortunately, a lot of ETFs like the Poseidon PSDN ETF um, failed because it was unable to really move independently of the market. And so those are, those are all kind of trends that I'm seeing um, from your standpoint, cannabis banking or otherwise. What trends are you seeing in, in cannabis? Well, I think what, you know, my personal perspective and then shared by quite a few of my colleagues is, you know, I think a lot of people were counting on legalization to come in sometime in 2022. And there was a lot, particularly here in Colorado, there was a, a, a large expansion of grow facilities, manufacturing facilities with that mindset that that legalization was possibly coming. And then, you know, but we continue to have expansion of the marketplace. And what I mean by that 
is, you know, in 2014, we had two states and now we have, one, you know, over 40 that have some sort of medical and or recreational, uh, you know, industry within those. So I think you're you're not having, you know, like here in Colorado, we're not seeing that tourist driven information. It's just not, you know, it's not the thrill that you used to have. Uh, but there's also just been prices that keep plummeting. And I think that's also part of the illegal market in California, the illicit market in Oklahoma, that we're seeing so many of those things. I was reading an article recently about uh, products being, you know, California products showing up in stores in New York City. And, the, and, in and Mexico. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't know Mexico, but I mean, in New York City and non-licensed dispensaries. So we still have that big black market out there that's happened there. But going back to the investments, I think a lot of people saw this as a growth market. And, you know, they were willing to do some crazy things. I mean, I, I, I looked at some of the, you know, some of the buys that have been going on out there going, oh, my God, where do you come up with those evaluations? I went to a very fancy private business school, but they didn't teach me how to do those evaluations. I mean, you know, this was just... Yeah. So, I mean, you know, but as you and I are seeing, but we're seeing a consolidation within the market because I think people expanded way too too quick where I want certain groups that are just very focused on what they're doing and where they're going and their expansion footprints are making are making a difference with their profitability where others was how much can I gobble up and how much money can I get? Because with those obscene valuations of people giving you that money, you didn't have people that were watching their expenses and how, you know, running an effective company. And, and now you're having to watch people. I, in fact, I had this conversation at Bazinga uh, a few weeks ago with one, with my first ever banking client here in Colorado. And I was telling him, I said, look, you got three choices. You're either going to find money, you know, that you're going to, you're going to be able to do your expansion. You're either going to sell, and if you sell, you know, if you find the money, it's going to be, you're not going to, you're, the value you're going to get probably isn't going to match what you think you're going to do. You're going to sell, and you're going to get a lesser price than you would have just because of what's going on in the marketplace. I said, or maybe it's time to entrench. You know, and entrench being, you know, he goes, well, you know, we've got, you know, almost 200 employees. I'm like, that should be the last place you're looking to cut costs. From my perspective, you should be going, where can I find those internal costs? Because if I have to look that person in the eye and lay them off, I want to know that I honestly looked at something. You know, I looked at all aspects before it came to that. And I think that's where a lot of companies are right now. And I think people that do have the cash flow and or, or the ability to find that financing are going to find some heck of some deals right now. I've got an old client down in Arizona, just picked up five stores for, for you know, less than what he would have paid for a single store, five, you know, three years ago. So, I mean, you know, finding those opportunities, I think very well-run companies and companies, that, once again, they might not be making a profit, but having that positive cash flow that they can sit there and make sure that they are funding their operations. And this particular client in Arizona paid cash for everything. So they actually had the money on the books to be able to do that. So I, I think consolidation is still going to be something, Josh, that is coming in the future. Um, and we're going to see bigger and bigger pieces. Let's see what happens with Safer Banking Act. You know, descheduling, you know, I'm I'm less positive. Yeah, so, so let's jump, let's let's jump into that one because I sure. think rescheduling is going to bring in a lot more FOMO and um, people that may have been on the sidelines, if if they reschedule to a three and it brings some life back in for those that kind of just threw in the towel 
Uh, now they might be reevaluating that or they just might be so bitter. They're just over it. I don't know. But having said that, um, where, what do you think of that some potential changes could occur if the, if we were to go to a schedule three, where do you foresee the industry evolving from there? The first thing is, I think a lot of people are going to kick themselves in the backside for giving up their medical licenses. (laughs) How's that? Um, You know, because all of a sudden, you know, we talk about schedule three, that's still not available over the counter. Okay. So how do we get to the point dealing with the adult recreational market? How will that actually affect that marketplace? If that's it, um, you know, but then again, we're not dealing with a schedule one drug anymore, particularly 280E comes into play, obviously, from the standpoint, but once again, does that 280E equate over to, you know, I mean, it's for Schedule One drugs, so theoretically, you would be able to see profit, the profitability pop up, because we both know, Josh, there's somewhere between a 50 and 70% effective tax rate at the federal level because of 280E, no matter... I've seen every intricate structure I think you could ever put on the planet when it comes to this industry, you know, while trying to get around it. But the bottom line is it's still there and it's a factor. Um, I think that it will make the medical industry a lot more appealable and it will also drive pricing at the medical level also, that it will probably increase some of the pricing because it will require more of a pharmaceutical grade, um, you know, product than what's currently being done. Then you throw in the FDA and all the other fun stuff that would come with that. I, I think it, it it could it, it could be a wonderful thing for the industry, but careful what you wish for. Okay. Um, what's the likelihood on that? You got a crystal ball, my God, I know you do, and you're looking at that thing and you're seeing what the future holds for the industry. Um, is is it is schedule three gonna happen? Is it not? What does your crystal ball say about the future of cannabis? Um, especially in light of, of, of rescheduling? Well, I, I think we have to, we can go back to the DEA. The DEA is not going to move fast. We all know that. And I think we can use a, uh, a hypothesis or a premise of how slow they were to accept applications to get medical grade cannabis from somewhere besides old myths. And, you know, and it literally took congressional, interf- you know, Congress to actually intervene there, uh, members of Congress, I should say, to tell the DA, hey, you've got to start allowing these people. But I mean, that was what, three, four years that they sat on application. So based on that premise, I, I don't think the DEA is going to be in a hurry to deschedule. And once again, I, and I shouldn't say once again, my premise is also there are so many other federal agencies that will have to be part of that. You know, if the DEA decides that, that's great. You know, but then again, what will the, how long will it take those regulators to agree on the rules? How long before we can enforce it? You know, what are the time sequences behind that? So I, you know, I think it, it opens up a, another prism of ideas and thoughts that you have to have on going around it now being a actually medically approved drug as a schedule three. Mm-hmm. Now legalization, I would prefer legalization always have always will. Um, but that's going to be c- Congress acting and with world events today, obviously that's not at the top of the list of anybody at this point. Um, and I don't think it's been at the top of the list of very many people to begin with. 
because we're three years into this administration that said they were going to do something. I think before that we had the Obama administration, you know, Trump will we'll just leave those eight years out and those four years out of the way. But, you know, I think we've had almost, you know, we've had literally 11 years of somebody saying we're going to do something with the right mix in the house, in the Senate, and we still haven't done it, Josh. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm, I'm less, sure of legalization than I am descheduling because I think descheduling will come first. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think uh if if they were to deschedule, it would be huge bring a lot of revenue in, but knowing the way the government operates and how lobbyists are in control of both parties, it's probably going to go schedule three and big pharma is going to get it and everyone else holding onto a license is screwed. So 97 and a half percent of the industry is going to get wiped out. That's my guess. I hope I'm wrong, uh, but that is my crystal ball. Um, Where can they find you at, Michael, if anybody's got any more questions about banking, about BSA, AML, or any other acronym, where can they get a hold of you at? Um, the easiest way is to look me up on LinkedIn under The Cannabis Banker. It's the moniker that I've chosen because I was one of the original pioneers and architects of banking cannabis back in 2014. So that's where I am right now. I'm actually serving a, a timeout right now and a non-compete. So um, I'm happy to give people free advice because I could not be compensated for my for my work for a year. So, so there you go. There's a free way. You know, I'm I'm willing to do everything for free at this point. So, uh, <laughs> well, I, I will definitely put your information in the show notes if anyone wants to get a hold of Michael. Uh, in the meantime, while it's free, take it while it's while it lasts. Uh, but with that, I think we're gonna have to roll this one up. So again, I want to thank my guest Michael O'Neill, the cannabis banker. That we're gonna have to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't. And I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.